Would you get your Bible and you turn to Genesis chapter 12? I just want to give you guys kind of somewhat of an update. Last week, Justin told you guys that he'd be having surgery on his knee, um, and it was going to be a two-part surgery. We'd have one part, and then five weeks later after that, well, fortunately, the, the surgery was successful, um, and he doesn't have to have the second part. They went and did it all in one go. He was here this morning crutching around, and so God willingly, he'll be back here next week teaching. And so if you guys want to pray for him, uh, feel free to pray. In fact, just pray for the Andersons in, in general. Uh, if you remember, Emily, his wife, is still waiting to have their baby boy, and so they're at home. They got little three-year-old and baby on the way and a baby on crutches. And so you guys can go ahead and just pray for, pray for them. A little stab at Justin. Um, because I, I'm just like, what type of ministry do we run here where our pastors are having knee injuries, right? Like our job is not that physically straining. I think it's one of those things when he does one of these things up here that he's jacked up his knee or something. So, so just pray for him. He needs Jesus. Um, so turn, turn, turn to Genesis chapter 12 as we look at the covenants. Um, as, you're, as, you're, as you're turning there, why don't you guys do me a favor and just pause me for a second and um, let's ask God to redeem and bless this moment. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, and, and as we thank you for humor and laughter, God, we do lift up to you, Justin and Emily and their family, and God, we pray right now that our hearts, as we prayed earlier, would just be gravitated towards you, ultimately you drawing us to yourself. As we look at this beautiful doctrine, Lord, the doctrine of covenant, which you establish relationship with us on your terms um, in spite of sin, God, I pray that you would show us the weight of our sin and your holiness and the magnitude of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. God, I even pray tonight that you would draw people who do not know you to yourself for the first time and that your spirit would be moving and your spirit would be at work. For those of us who've known you for a short time or for a long time, that you would encourage our hearts and assure us of the salvation and of the love and the hope that we have solely, not by our works, but in Christ Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. The high school I went to um, was never good at football. In fact, we hadn't gone to the playoffs for 15 years before I had gone to this high school, and we were such a bad team that my sophomore year, all the sophomores got to play varsity, which we were excited about. Um, And the last game of the season, we had an opportunity to have a winning season for the first time in several years. We were 5-4, and and if we would have won this game, we'd go to the playoffs. Well, 5-4, and down by 7. Two minutes to go in the game, our offense marches down the field, coach calls a play, I'm thinking they're going to throw it to me, I'm going to have a touchdown, my name's will be in the paper, I'll probably go to the NFL, play for the Raiders. None of, none of, that, none of, that, none of that happened. He pumped it to me and threw it to another guy, scores a touchdown, and now we're down by one. And if you don't know anything about football, what happens is you're down by one and you kick a field goal, you can tie it, you kick a PAT, it's a point after a touchdown. Or you could choose the option to go for two. Where our coach calls a timeout and he says, we're going to go for two. I was the guy who held the, held the kick for the kicker, I was to fake it, and and run left. We had done this several times in the year, and every single time it was a success. So we come out, coach calls fake field goal, run left, we're going to go for two, we're going to win this game. It's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to shout, we'll be in the paper, I'll play for the Raiders, same thing. And so after, after that happens, I get into the huddle, and for me, I don't know why, I just go, you know what, fake field goal, run left, but in my mind I'm going, I'm not running left, I'm going to go right. So unbeknownst to my teammates, coaches, fans, you know, ball boy, no one knew anywhere where I was running. And so as soon as the ball came, the kicker faked it. I faked left, and I ran right thinking, here comes glory. Bam! I just got smacked, right? And as bad as that hurt, it hurt more knowing that I didn't get in. And as bad as that hurt, I ran to the sideline, and I can see my coach. And he's yelling all types of four-letter words towards me. And spit's coming out of his mouth. He, he has a little headset. He throws that down. And it's just like slow. It's like, no. Like my gut inside of me is turning over. I knew, like, 
I just made the stupidest mistake of my entire life. And he's cursing at me and he's yelling at me and he finally says, look at because of your stupid mistake, everyone loses. Look at your teammates. You failed them, you failed yourself, you failed us, you failed this city. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> 14 years old, dude. Um, and, 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 and what's happening there is he had a point. Because I decided not to go the way that he told me to go, which has been successful every time. I decided for whatever reason to go to the right, and now every single person experiences loss because of my mistake. And there was nothing that I can do, nothing that anybody else can do to reverse what God had, excuse me, what, what I had done, this mistake that I had done. And then my coach says these words to me, and he looked at me and he said, listen, I'm, I'm through with you. Get out of my face. That, 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 that way that I made a mistake and everyone experienced it is the backdrop of the doctrine of the fall in which we learned last week. Where Adam has a way, God gives him the way, God says you can eat of the fruit, enjoy it. Adam and Eve, our first parents, and yet they rebel against God and now their sin affects us all. And not just us as humanity, but the entire world. And there's nothing that Adam could do, there was nothing that Eve can do, and there's nothing that you can do, and there's nothing that I could do to ever reverse this, this sin, to ever reverse this curse, to ever reverse the penalty, to ever reverse the condemnation that now hangs upon man. Because God is holy, and he's a holy God who will execute justice. And yet, unlike my coach who says, get out of my face, I'm through with you, God, who would completely be righteous and justified in doing so, He doesn't say, get out of the way. He doesn't say, I'm through with you. Not just in response to sin, but in spite of sin, our God is a covenantal God who says, I will pursue you, and I will love you, and I will draw to you myself. And that's the backdrop of covenant. What what covenant means is, biblically, a covenant is a solemn agreement. It's a solemn, strong commitment between one or two parties that's that, that secured by and guaranteed by obligations and by promises, and it's sealed with an oath. And, and, and even as I say that, covenant, and we hear that story, covenant, it doesn't make sense to us in our culture. I mean, the word covenant, it, at best, is a word that we use in church, and we really don't even know what it means. We talk about covenantal relationship and us being in a covenant, but we don't really have any examples within our culture to pull from and say, oh, yeah, just like that. Especially now, and especially our generation and your age group, commitment is not something that we say we are entering to, like God, into a life and death bond that is unchangeable. I mean, we change all the time. We're just a transient people and commitment for life. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, the one thing that we should be able to pull illustration from that God gives us that we are to be covenantal relationship with is marriage. And, and as a pastor, I get the opportunity to do tons of weddings and stand before people. And weddings are always these, these great moments. Everyone's got their best clothes on. The dude's got his best clothes on that he's rented. And the girl's got her dress on. And her father comes. And who gives this woman to be ready to this man? Her, her mother and I. He's crying. And it's just this just great, great time. And, and the guy sits, looks at the girl. And the girl looks at the guy. They, they got him standing there like boxers almost. And it's like, I'm going to be with you forever. And, and nothing's going to happen. And sickness and death. And no matter what, I'm going to be with you. And it's, it's beautiful at the moment. At the moment, it's beautiful. And yet, statistically speaking, and by experience, we know within the church and outside the church, so those who love Jesus and so those who say they don't love Jesus, that 40 to 50% of the time, it's a lie. They say, and we say it's conditional, excuse me, it's unconditional, but it's totally conditional. One party doesn't keep up to what they said they would do, and the other party splits or vice versa. 
No, no, matter, no matter how much we would desire and how much we pray, our spouses can get up and walk away at any moment. So, so the one picture, the one illustration that we would say, oh yeah, God covenants love with us like that, it doesn't work. Because every single one of us have ex- has experienced some sort of failure in some sort of relationship. We've experienced people quitting on us. We've experienced us quitting on people. We experience people hurting us, and we experience hurting other people. We experience people failing us, and us, failing, and us failing people. And so when it comes to relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendships, whether it's even you joining a church or being a part of a redemption community or a small group, you come in halfway in with a distance. I'm going to give you a part of me, but not all of me, because I know my tendency is to fail you. And I know your tendency by my own experience is for you to fail me. So therefore, you're only going to get a piece of me. I'm not going to all the way in. I don't trust you and you don't trust me. And I get it. And we take this same distrust with one another and we place it on a relationship with God because we think God, like my coach, if there is a God and he understands that we have sinned against him and he's a holy God and he will execute justice and wrath upon sin, if there is a God, is he worthy to be trusted? And is, would this God love me? And how do I know? The doctrine of covenant is God's way to answer the questions of our hearts, which is, how do I know? How do I know you love me? How do I know that you're going to be here? How do I know you're not going to run away like, and you fill in the blank? And God establishes his covenant, not in response to sin, but in spite of sin, because of his sovereign purposes and his love for us, God holds up in the covenant his, his holiness and his, his hatred towards sin, and yet his mercy and his grace and his love towards sinners. And so covenant in itself, the doctrine of covenant, lays the foundation of grace. And so four things I want to look at as we look at the, at the covenant. There's a lot we can learn. We're going to look mainly at the covenant that God made with Abraham, starting in Genesis. And four things. that First, we see God initiates the relationship And then we'll see God sustains the relationship, God confirms the relationship, and finally, God secures the relationship. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and to your father's house, the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God now, in the backdrop of sin, God says, I'm going to pursue. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians when referring to Genesis chapter 12, is the gospel. It says that the gospel is preached, meaning the good news is in the backdrop of sin and God being totally worthy to execute justice and wrath towards sinners decides to enter in. It's why the subtitle of of covenant is God pursues. And so God pursues people, not because of the potential in people, not because of their pedigree, not because of their background, but completely because of his love because of his grace. And so he pursues a man named Abram, whom we don't know much about, other than the fact that Abram is a sinner. He's got a wife. They're old in age. They don't have kids, so she's barren. And then God calls this man, and he asks him to leave his country, to leave the people, to leave his comforts, and say, follow me, and I will be in relationship with you. God chooses Abram not because of something about Abraham. God chooses Abraham because of something of God. The first thing that we see when it comes to God's covenant is that God initiates it. And so when we enter into a covenantal relationship with the holy God, we are entering into a relationship and a bond that is life and death. 
And it's on God's terms. There's no bartering. There's no arguing. There's no contract negotiations. It's completely up to God. And so God and his grace and his love towards sinners starts and he calls Abram. And this is the beginning of this covenant. He makes a promise. Here's the promise. He says, what I'm going to do is, I know your wife's barren. I know you guys are both old. I'm going to provide a miracle. You're going to have a child. And this child is going to have children. And they're going to have children. And they're going to have children. I'm going to make you a great nation. Not because of your race, not because of your background, but because, again, because of God's love. And I'm going to bless the whole world through this nation. It was the gospel. That though God had been sinned against in the garden, unlike my coach, who says, get out of my face. God says, I want to enter in. I want to redeem. I want to I save. And so God sets forth this great redemptive narrative, and he starts with a sinner called by grace, completely initiated by God, named Abram. He says, I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to give you a land where your, your kids will be. And so the first thing that we see in the aspect of the covenant is that God has to initiate it, and he initiates it by grace. And that's just what I'm saying is, you are not called because you were qualified. I mean, God didn't look at you and say, to be in relationship with me, I'm going to pick this person, I'm going to pick this person, because they're qualified, because they went to this church, they understand this particular doctrine, they live the life that's pretty holy, and so they would be useful in my plan of redemption. That's not what he did. When he was starting out to set a long plan of redemption, to redeem, to heal, to fix this broken world, he didn't look at Abram and say, you know what, he's got a lot of potential. He didn't look at Abram and say his character is really good. It had nothing to do with Abram. It had everything to do with the character and the love of God. So you are not called because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're called. So whatever it may be that God has you at, when he calls you to himself by his own good purpose and for his own pleasure, your qualification comes because God called you to himself and he called you back into his world. So whether you're a student, whether you're an employer, an employee, a wife, a husband, a child, whatever it is that God has for you to do, you can trust that you can do it by grace in his power because he qualifies you by his character, by him calling you. He never gives us more than we can handle. First thing of entering into a covenantal relationship with God is God starts it. The second thing that we see in this covenant that God makes with Abram is not only does God initiate the relationship by grace, but he also sustains it. If you turn your Bible over to one page to the right, we continue this, this process, this covenant that God is making with Abram in Genesis chapter 15 and how he sustains it. Verse 1 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And so here's what's going on. Abram hears the promise of God. He receives the call from God. He leaves his, his home. He leaves his comfort, and he goes, and he still doesn't have a son. By the time we pick up in, in Genesis chapter 15, now Abraham is around 75 years old. His wife is just as, just as old. They don't have any kids. And so he's coming to God because he's wavering in his faith. And when I say wavering in his faith, he's not saying, God, I'm going to leave you. He's not saying, God, I'm going to walk away from the faith. But he's just like you and I, those of us who place our faith in Jesus. There are just moments in our life where it's hard to believe the promises of God. 
And it's not that we're, we're losing our salvation. It's not that we're going to walk away from a holy God. But for whatever reason, because of circumstances, because of suffering, because of tragedy, and oftentimes because of our, our own sin and the consequences of our sin, it's hard to believe what God has said to be true. And Abraham comes to him and he says, God, I, I just want to know. We're getting older. There's, there's, there's no son. There's no descendant. And there's no land. And he asks him, how, how am I to know? What Abraham is asking is, I want assurance. I want to know, how do I know that you love me? How do I know that this covenant is real? And I think we are the same way with God. If you hold your place here in Genesis 15 and turn to the right to Mark chapter 9, and as you turn there, the context here is, is, is Jesus is about to heal a, man, um, a man's son and cast out a demon. And the reason why I love this when it comes to us wavering in our faith the reason why I love this text when it comes to, to me personally, when, when I'm struggling, even though I love God and it's hard for me to believe the promises that he has, this is my prayer. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says to him, Jesus said to him, if, I, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Because the man was struggling, like Jesus, if you can heal him, you could do it. And, the man, and Jesus says, of course I can. All things are possible. And here's my prayer in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, God, God, I believe you, but will you help me in my unbelief? And that's where Abram's at. And, and notice how God responds to him. He doesn't slap him around and say, how dare you not believe? He doesn't say, buck up, believe more, believe bigger. It, it, it's not so much the, the amount of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. And so what Abram is insured by, when God gives him grace, he talks to him, he speaks to him, and he confirms the promise to him. It, what he says to him is the same thing that he said in Genesis chapter 12. He says, come out here, look at the stars. Are you able to count these stars? Look how many they are. So shall your descendants be. Basically, he's saying the same thing that he said in Genesis chapter 12. God says, trust me, I'm going to do it. Because God understands our weaknesses. This is not a moment of failure. This is not a moment of unbelief. Every single person of faith goes through moments of doubt. We go through moments of frustration, and it's, it's, it's totally right for us to run to God and say, God, how will I know? And God, God sustains the covenant, and he sustains the relationship with Abram through the power of his word. We all have moments like this. Um, the last couple of weeks for me has been a very frustrating two weeks um, a couple weeks ago, we were playing basketball, some guys here from the church, and, and the gym we were playing in was completely hot, and I'm driving home and sweating and waiting to get home in my AC cool house, and my wife calls and says, bad news, the AC's broken. <sighs> and I'm like, all right, we'll get there. I get home, we call the insurance, we find our homeowner's insurance, we find out that they, they cover it. It's like, oh, it's not going to cost us money. They send the guy out, and he goes, man, it's all bad. you got to get this part, and the insurance company's got to order it. And he goes, let me just tell you, man, that, late, that takes at least two days. And so we call him, we're like, man, we got an eight-week-old son, i got a wife, i got a two-year-old, my two-year-old's running around going, hot, hot. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, buddy, great observation. Um, and, 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 and then two days turned into four days. Four days turned into eight days. And eight days turned into 12 days. 
from hotel to hotel. Um, get this, we went to a friend's house to stay with him, his air conditioner broke. And then we went from <laughs> another house to, to staying with a family friend's house, back to the house where we were at because the air conditioner got fixed. And, and it's just hard because there's me, my wife, and there's two little boys and we're, we're, we're trying to take care of his house and, and not treat it like our house. We got this two-year-old who's running around like putting stickers on the ground, hieroglyphics on the wall. And, and, and I'm just like, oh, what is going on? And finally last Wednesday when I was going home, or my friend's house, I went to his house and I laid down and I'm, I was literally frustrated. I can feel it. I'm just like, if my kid says something, bam, right in his face. And, and, and I, I, just, I just know I'm calling the, the homeowner's insurance. I'm talking to them. I lost my salvation six or seven times. Um, prayed for forgiveness, came back. I'm good. And, and, then, and then finally, finally, I just opened up God's word. And I didn't read anything specific. I didn't go to a particular verse on being a hater. I just went, I just went, <laughs> I just went to the Psalms. And I, and I opened up God's word, and I read his word, and, and what I was just reminded is this. God's in control, and he has this. And I was reminded, like Abraham, of the promise that he gives us. God promises that he will never, to his children, give us more than we can handle. And the reason, the reason why I was so frustrated is I wasn't placing my faith in the ability of God to work. I was placing my faith in the ability of this, this homeowner's insurance. I was placing the ability of my kids to behave, for my wife to understand what it's like to, I don't know, not be at home with two kids all day, I'd, I'd hate to be a single dad. I'd just, I'd quit, right? And so I, I, I'd come home and I realized my, my, I'm, I'm trusting in them to do something instead of trusting and believing in God's word. And God sustained me in that. And that's exactly what God does here with Abraham in this covenantal relationship. God's relationship with you, he's saying, listen, I'm not gonna quit. Come to me. I'm not gonna quit on you. I'm not telling you to get out of my face. I will find you. I will come after you. And then what Abraham responds here in 15, verse 6, Genesis 15, verse 6. Um, if you have a highlighter or a pen, I would highlight this. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Abraham, it says in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He believed his promise, and it, he accounted to him as righteousness. Meaning it, it was not his righteous activity that made him righteous, but his faith in God. He says, God, I'm going to believe you. And since he believed him, it's counted to him as righteousness. This is the same verse that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses in Galatians and Romans to talk about justification and how we're made right before God by faith and faith alone through grace and grace alone. It's not the amount of our faith. It's the object of our faith. And so what we see when it comes to God's covenantal relationship with us is that God, by grace, not by works, initiates it. God, by grace and his means of grace, is through the power of his word, he sustains it. And next we'll see that God, God confirms it. Genesis 15, chapter 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave, and gave you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, he's Lord, give me insurance. I, I want to know. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, it, brought to him all these things, and he cut them in half and laid each over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came, birds came down to prey on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. If you jump down to 17. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So, so here's what's happening here. 
God says, okay, you want another insurance. You want assurance. You want to know that I love you. Again, covenant asks the question of our heart, how do we know God loves us? He initiates it. He sustains it. And now he confirms it. And this is what he does. He goes to Abraham. Remember, this is a life and death covenant. God's not getting out of this. And he says, this is what I want you to do. Go bring me some animals. Go bring me a goat. Go bring me a ram. Go bring me a pigeon. Go bring me a turtle dove. And I want you to do is take these animals and split them in half and then set them parallel to each other. This aspect of the covenant shows we have a holy God. And we have a God who hates sin. We have a God who hates suffering. And yet, we have a God who is gracious and who desires to be in relationship with sinners. And the only way that that's going to happen there will be suffering. There will be the shedding of blood. And so God lays this down and says, take these animals and split them apart. And this wasn't foreign to, to Abraham because, in fact, this custom, this, this, this idea was something that happened in the cultures around him. What would happen is an overlord or a ruler of a particular tribe would be in conflict with another tribe, and when they would capture or dominate the other ruler of that tribe, they would take over the servants or the people. In order that they would have their respect, in order that they know that they were in covenant, they would do the same thing. And they would take the animals and they'd split them apart. And they would make the servants that they had just captured walk through the animals. And it was signifying, it was called cutting of the covenant. It was signifying uh, a curse that you were calling upon yourself. And what they would say is, if you live up to our rules, in essence, if you obey, I'll protect you, I'll love you, and I'll provide for you but it's completely up to your obedience. And so these people would walk through this knowing we better obey because this overlord, this, this sovereign, he, he's serious. And, and in essence, if we don't obey, may what ha- has happened to these animals happen to us. And so what happens is they begin to obey. They begin to obey all the laws. They begin to obey all the rules. And what's sad is they don't do it out of love. They do it out of fear. And so many of us treat our relationship with God the same way. We, again, we treat God like he's my coach. He's just waiting on us to make a mistake so that he can come and get us. He's just waiting on us to slip up so that he can bring punishment on us. And so when we obey God, it's like we're walking through that and we're obeying God in order to receive love from him. We're obeying God in order to receive mercy from him. We obey God in order to receive protection. We obey God in order to find a spouse. We obey God in order, at worst, that we just won't go to hell. And yet, that obedience is not biblical obedience. Sure, the Bible was clear that if we love Jesus, we obey his commandments. But that's not the type of obedience that God is after. That obedience at itself is trying to get things from God, but not God himself. That obedience says, if I obey, God will look down and he will accept me because something that I've done. The covenantal relationship with God is not based on your obedience. At best, that obedience is selfish because it's about you and about what you can get and how you can protect yourself. Ultimately, it's you looking after number one. That's not what God does, the true overlord with Abram. In fact, you could say, what does this have to do? What does that have to do with the covenant that God confirms with Abram? Look look with me again in verse 12, in chapter 15. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, the dreadful darkness, great darkness fell upon him. What we notice here is, after Abraham separates the animals, he's asleep. And then what we pick up in verse 17 is when the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. 
God, through the form of fire, assumes the position of the servant. So to say, Abraham, when I did this, you were sleeping. When God confirms the relationship, when God confirms the covenantal relationship, he truly means life or death. And so he calls a curse a down upon himself, says, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, if I don't give you a descendant, if I don't bless you, if I don't continue to love you when your people made this happen to me, may I die. So, so, so we see, not like the overlord who, who has the subjects walk through, God the Father says, I'll walk through. And I did this, Abraham, when you were sleeping, meaning it has nothing to do with your obedience. And it's true of us now. Our relationship with God is not dependent upon our works. It's completely dependent upon the word and the promise and the work of God himself. That's good news. Because if it were up to us, we'd fail. And every single one of us would be deserving to be split. And God, is, uh, God himself promises to Abraham, not so, not so for my people. This is what the Bible talks about when it communicates the Hebrew word hased, which is God's loyal love, his unending love, his one-way love of which God, this covenantal God, pursues his people unto death. Like when he, when he enters into relationship, he means what he says. He's not a God that's going to run away, though we run away from him. He's a God, no matter what, who's not afraid of your situation, who's not afraid of your issues, who's not afraid of your past, and not even the sins that you will commit in the future. Our God is a loving God, a relentless God, who has one-way love that is specific and special for those whom he loves and those who respond to him in faith. Amen? That's good news. That's really good news. But let me just tell you what happens. God makes this covenant. It sounds really good. Abram's asleep. It's completely up to God. There's no way they can jack it up. And yet, what does Abram do? He, dis- he disobeys. His descendants disobey. And then God makes another covenant with a man named Moses. And he gives them the law. And then they disobey. And they can't obey. And they can't keep it right. And then God calls another guy. And, and he gives, makes a covenant with him, with David and the kingdom of Israel. And they disobey. And they disobey. And finally, God allows the people around to capture them. They were not a blessing to the other nations. They were not intent on being people who reflected God's love so that the world may be saved. And yet God, because he made a covenant, doesn't quit. And so finally, in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, he promises that he will provide one last covenant. If you take your Bibles and turn to the right to Jeremiah uh, 31 beginning in verse 31. This is God now prophesying through the prophet Jeremiah of a new covenant that is to come. No man could ever hold up his deal. And so God promises this. And Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor, and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. God says, you couldn't do it. I'm going to do it myself. And he, and he promises this covenant. So God speaks again of a promise, and then God makes good on this promise, ultimately in this. 
the way God is going to uphold his holiness, which he has to execute justice and wrath upon sin, and yet uphold his love and his grace towards sinners, is to come himself in the personal work of son Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus, Jesus, so to say, becomes a death substitute for us so God does not have to treat us as our sin deserves. And every single ounce of wrath God pours upon Jesus for every single person who would place their faith with him, in him. And then now all we receive, for those of us who have faith in Jesus, not by works but by faith, is the love that God so desperately desires to lavish upon us. And this covenant that God secures ultimately through the cross, he confirms it with Abraham, he secures it ultimately in the new covenant with Jesus. If, if you turn over, we can see Jesus instituting this in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And the context is here is Jesus is now at the end of his life and he's with his disciples. This long plan of redemption, which God was going to redeem the world of every tribe and every tongue and every people group, would ultimately be God himself coming and Jesus Christ and him taking on the wrath of God that was meant towards man and that we may receive his mercy and his love. And when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's instituting what we have in front of us, the communion. And before he talks about this bread, this bread that's in front of me, why we take this every week that represents the body of Jesus that would be broken for us. I think the symbol of that is so important as we snap the bread every week that Jesus was broken because of my sin. It's personal. And then Jesus was broken for the sin of the world. It's corporate. And then he offers his blood and he says, this is the new covenant. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you and is a new covenant of my blood. And so what, in essence, what Jesus is saying is to these Jewish men, his disciples, is long ago, long ago, my father, God the Father, made a promise to your father Abraham unto death. And Jesus, in essence, says, I'm here to fulfill that promise. I'm here to make good on that promise. I'm here to show the ascend love of which God established and God confirmed with Abram, and now he secures for the whole world, for every single person who would believe in him. And Jesus says, I'm making good on God's promise. I am the one, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I will forgive your sins, and I will treat you no more as your sins deserve. This is Hased love. It's covenantal love of which our God pursues us in spite of our sin because of his sovereign love that he's placed upon us. Amen? I think the best picture that I was taught to communicate this as said love is the story of the prodigal son. There's a story of two sons, and one son, the older son, he's got his own problems of self-righteousness, but if we focus in on the love of the, of the father for the youngest son, the youngest son is in relationship with the father, and he comes to the father and he says, in essence, I wish you were dead so I can have your money. And so the father gives him his money, and the kid runs away, and he just spends it on wild life and wild living. He finds himself now completely out of money, working in a pigsty, and he thinks to himself, I'll come home, and maybe my dad will accept me. And now we're thinking as we read this story, there's no way this father should accept him. In fact, he doesn't deserve his lifestyle, the way that he lives, doesn't deserve for the father to accept him. And yet what we see in the story is day after day, it implies that the father is looking over the horizon, wondering if this is the day that my son will come home. And so as the son is coming home, he's rehearsing in his head, what am I going to say to him? What am I going to do? Maybe he'll let me work with his slaves. And that's not what happens. Even though he deserves to be cast away, the father sees him, and he does what no other father in that culture would have done. No Hebrew man would have made himself look so foolish. He picks up his clothes, and he runs after the son who does not deserve his love, who wished that he was dead. And what does he do? 
he takes a robe and he wraps it around him and he hugs him and he takes the ring, which was a signal and a sign that said, you are a part of this family forever. You're mine. And that's the picture of grace. This kid did not deserve it. And yet the father goes out of his way and said, I'll take the blame on myself in order that I may love you, in order that you may be mine and that you may know that you are my son forever. It's a great story. In fact, if that were a movie, at the end of that, it would just be perfect, and the credits would roll up, and we'd say, that's awesome, that's grace, that's how God loves us, because if we were the children and that was a father, that's how God loves us, through his grace, he pursues us. And yet, the experience, my experience, is that that wouldn't be the end of the movie. Your, your experience, for those of you in Christ Jesus, that wouldn't be the end of the movie. You know why? There'd be a part two. There'd definitely be a sequel. And the sequel would be this, the son runs away again. And he comes back, and the father runs to him, and he throws his robe on him, and he takes the ring, and he puts it on his finger. And then the son runs back again, and the father comes after him, and he puts his robe on him, and he places the ring on his finger, and again, and again, and again. From experience, we know we never hold up to our end of the bargain. Our obedience is never good enough. We are constantly sinning against God, and yet God the father says what? I'll take the blame on myself, ultimately my son, so that I will run to you, I will cover you, I will love you, I will put my spirit in you that will testify that you're mine. Amen? And when Jesus makes his covenant, it's not just a covenant that he fulfills a promise for Abram. It's not just a covenant for the disciples, but it's for every single person who would run to him in repentance and faith just by believing. And not only is it redemption and the forgiveness of sins from past, present, and future, but it's the promise that nothing, no power from hell, and no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. There is nothing that anyone in this world, Satan or his demons, or even your sin could do to separate you from the radical, awesome love of God. That's the gospel. God is not afraid of your sin. He's made a way that he can enter in in spite of your sin. I think, I think it'd be fitting right now for us to just pray and then come to the communion. When Jesus, when Jesus institutes this last covenant and he gives us the outward, the outward experience of the covenant, he gives us communion. It's an inward reality of faith in God. And he says, come and just do this by remembering me. Make it tangible. Make your faith real. And just, just take the bread and dip it into the wine and remember, God loves me. He loves me more than I can ever love him. I can never outsend the grace of God. My God will pursue me. I'm his. I'm always his. Though I run away, my God pursues me. He clothes me with the righteousness of Jesus. He does not treat me as my sin deserved. He doesn't even look at me as my sin because I'm clothed in the holiness and the perfection of my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm saved not by works, but by the love of Jesus. Two ways to respond from this. First, if you're a believer, it's clear. Whatever it is in your life that you feel has a hold of you other than God, confess it, repent, and pray that God would give you the strength of the Holy Spirit to continue to obey. And if you're here, and you would say, this may be the first time that God is tugging on my heart, what we know to be true of the scripture is, you would never know that God is tugging on your heart unless indeed God was tugging on your heart. And there's nothing you can do to get away from him. He will pursue you, and he will pursue you, and he will pursue you, because he loves you that much. So the best thing to do is repent and believe. You don't gotta know everything except for this. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. God loves me. And the way that you would show your faith easily is by taking one step to come and say, Lord, I'm yours. It's not by my calling. It completely has to be the calling of the Lord and you committing your life to him and letting him deal with the rest. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. Lord, we are like the son. We are like the daughter. We are sons and daughters, though you have placed your love upon us. We unintentionally and intentionally sin against you. We are undeserving, Lord, of the love that you give, and yet we are so thankful. We are so moved that you would send your son in order to die in our stay. We believe that Jesus did live the life that we should have lived and didn't. We believe that Jesus did die the death that we should have died and never will have to, and that our punishment fell upon him. Father, we confess that you did raise your son Jesus from the grave and that you did ascend to the heaven in Christ Jesus and send forth your spirit. And God, we pray that your spirit would testify with our spirits that we are indeed sons and daughters and that we would cry out, Abba, Father. Father, we are a people who who try to follow the things of the world around us and we forget the voices that you speak to us by the power of your word and we just confess it, Lord. We need you more than anything and there's nothing that can lead us into true, right obedience other than your love. Not to get things from you, Lord, but to realize that you freely by your grace given us yourself. God, help us to be enamored and amazed by you. God, I pray that you would speak love into our hearts. And that the motivation of love would drive us to obey your commandments. God, we ask that you would do in us what we wouldn't normally ask for you to do. In Jesus' name, amen.